the first time I realized that I wanted more than I was supposed to want, it was both terrifying and it was so freeing. It was this liberating moment to realize, huh, I have the right to think about bigger things. I am much more comfortable being open about what I want in part because of who I was at 17. I wish at 17 someone had said to me, you are a Black woman and yes, you are entitled to imagine you could run for president. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Our guest today is Stacey Abrams. Stacey served in the Georgia House of Representatives for over a decade and entered the national spotlight in 2018 during her run for governor of Georgia. During that election, she became the first black woman to ever become the nominee for governor for a major party. She has since become one of the most prominent voices for voting rights in this country and helped start three organizations focused on voting rights, equal opportunity, and equal representation in the census. We should also note she's got a major side hustle, writing novels. We're going to get into that. Stacy. we're so excited to have you here. You've been a public figure for a while now. What's something we can't Google about you that you think people should know? I honestly don't know what isn't out there. Uh <laughs> What's something people you think would be surprised to know? When folks realize that I'm a very, very strong country music aficionado, that comes as a bit of a surprise. Oh, when I was in, I think I was 14, I said I hated country music. And the friend I was talking to said, why? And it really took me aback. And I'm like, huh, well, I don't know why. So I made myself listen to every radio station on the dial in Gulfport, Mississippi for two weeks each. And it turns out I do not like heavy metal because it has, you know, I, I just don't understand the utility. And I love country music. I feel like that says a lot about you as a person. <laughs> and it's a challenge. So I'm really excited that that's the starting off point. Okay, I got to ask, who's your favorite country musician? Oh, I, I love Lyle Lovett. I think his lyrics are thoughtful and hilarious. He appreciates both the musicality, but also the storytelling. And I got to see him in concert once, which made me very, very happy. That's pretty cool. So there's a lot to talk about with you and your career, but I want to start with two words, Selena Montgomery. Who is Selena Montgomery? <laughs> in 1999, during my third year of law school, I decided that I would write a novel. I wanted to write a spy novel, but at the time, publishers weren't publishing women as espionage novelists and certainly not as main characters in these stories. And you add the layer of race and that was just not gonna happen. So I regrouped. I told the exact same story about a chemical physicist who was trying to you know, thwart a terrorist plot and had to work with the man she loved. And you know, she kind of sort of killed his best friend. Anyway, it was a little complex, but I wrote it as a romance novel. And when I it came time to publish it, I was also in the midst of publishing my 
treatise on the operational dissonance of the unrelated business income tax. And it seemed to me that these are two things that would be incompatible in the public sphere. And while you can publish romance under a pen name, it is difficult to publish tax policy under a pen name. And so Selena Montgomery was born. I put my name in the book and the copyright. My picture was in the back of the book. But Selena Montgomery was my pen name and she went out into the world and I was always there with her. How did you come up with that name? Where did it come from? So I owed it to my editor. She needed to know what the name was going to be because we had agreed I would do a pen name. And I was up at like 2 a.m. watching an A&E biography of Elizabeth Montgomery who played Samantha on Bewitched. Great show. <laughs> Thank you. I uh, loved her. And then her evil cousin was Serena. She had the, the dark hair cousin. Yes. Oh, yes. I remember that. Well, I was you know, imagining my success and my R's were very funky, but I loved my L's. And so instead of being Serena, I became Selena, Selena Montgomery. <laughs> I love that. I also want to go back to when you talk about being in your third year of law school and just writing this on the side. When I was doing your intro, the question that came to mind is, do you ever sleep? And <laughs> this doesn't seem new. Like most people in law school are either completely burnt out or are out partying or trying to actively get a job, pay for school. Like there's so many things going on and you're like, oh, I'm also going to become a writer. So I was doing one of those things. I, I'm not a partier. I wasn't burned out. I was working to pay for school, but I am a really efficient multitasker. I loved writing and I figured wrongly that this would be the last time I'd have this much time. I have always subsisted on less sleep than is, you know, clinically recommended. I do not advise it. <laughs> what are we talking like every night? I so when I was younger, I could do three to four hours. I basically have, I've done five hours for the last 20 years. I'm edging towards seven hours. Like last night, I went to bed at 1.30, woke up this morning at 7. Stacey, we're really different. Like my, <laughs> my number one hobby is sleep. Oh, I like sleep. I just don't, I'm not good at getting it. I love naps. Naps and I have become friends. Love a good nap. I can sleep at 12 minute increments, 18 minutes, 26 and 45. That is a great quality. What I love about starting and, and the reason why we want to start off with talking about Selena is that I think a lot of people have interests that don't necessarily align with their day job. How did you develop that part of yourself? Was it a way to kind of fulfill a part of you that you thought wasn't going to be fulfilled by, at that time, graduating from law school? And obviously, you've now gone on to write more books. How do you think about that now? Why is writing so important to you? Writing is a part of who I am. And one of the challenges and opportunities for me growing up was that I never really decided I had to pick something. My mom at one point, I think I was in 10th grade or 11th grade, and she said, you know, you're shaping up to be a jack of all trades and a master of none. And she said it in a nice way, kind of trying to nudge me towards picking something because I was doing a bunch of things. I completely misunderstood her. She was using it as a, a soft way to say, pick something. I heard, become a master of everything, which was not her intent. But what it did for me was it really made me think, okay, I do have these things I love to do. My responsibility is to figure out how to do as many of them at once as I can, and then to organize myself and what I do to, I, I didn't use this language in my head when I'm you know 16 or 17, but as I got older, it 
as this became a recurrent theme, it was what do I give primacy to? What becomes secondary? And what is always sort of a through line? So I don't write every day. Uh, I don't write a novel every day. I don't write a book every day, but I'm always a writer. And I've carved out those spaces when writing has to be the primary thing I do. But at the exact same time, I never allow myself to be less than good at the things that I need to be doing. So the person who pays my salary gets my best performance. Like that's the bottom line. And then the next thing is the thing that fulfills me and that moves me. And then the thing after that is the thing I really like, but I don't love as much as I love the first two. I describe it as Jenga because it's a lie that these things can be in balance. There's, it's impossible for there to be balance. And so if you think about it as Jenga, you can pull a piece out and you can focus on this thing, but you do so with the very real risk that it's all going to collapse beneath you. The great thing about Jenga is you can just start again, build it again. When I'm kind of visualizing this this Jenga tower, when I think about you today as an outsider, I assume that from what I know, voting rights is sort of the foundation of that Jenga tower. That is where you have continued to make a name for yourself. It is where you've not just made a name for yourself, but you have made quite an impact. And there are many candidates out there who thank you for what you've done in Georgia in particular. But in researching for this interview, I was struck by how voting rights wasn't something you just took up when you became a politician Mm -hmm. and got in the public eye. It was something that has actually been with you, it seems like almost your whole life. And I would just love to kind of understand the origins of that. My parents were born in Hattiesburg, Mississippi in 1949. That means they grew up in abject poverty. My dad you know, of course, he teases my mom that he was on the wrong side of the tracks, but she was on the wrong side of the wrong side of the tracks. But they both grew up in deprivation. And they also grew up in the Jim Crow South. And Mississippi is well-renowned for how aggressively it implemented Jim Crow, how it was the origin of the Mississippi plan, which led to so much of what became the Jim Crow laws, especially for voting. My dad was arrested when he was 14 for registering people to vote in Hattiesburg. My mom was doing the same work. She just managed not to get caught because she was across town. But they grew up with this very real understanding of how essential access to the right to vote is for everything else. In a democracy, your citizenship is measured by your ability to participate in who governs and what they decide. We grew up then with parents who believed this, but who also made certain it was part of our lived experience. We would go to protest, we would go to volunteer, but we also went with them to vote. For most of my life, uh, you know, voting was about expanding access, expanding participation. I set up my first table to register people to vote when I was 17 at Spelman College. Nobody wanted to sign up. I was a very nerdy student and I was a very lonely student in that way. But it, for me, was essential because I used to go to city council meetings and I followed the news and I knew how important voting was and how young people in particular were giving up power that we could hold. Fast forward to 2013, my responsibility shifted from trying to expand access to trying to protect access because that's when the Voting Rights Act was eviscerated by the Supreme Court. And for your listeners who don't know the origin story of the Voting Rights Act, the states that were the most aggressive and pervasive in denying the right to vote 
were not stopped by you know this moment of revelation. They weren't on the road to Damascus. They stopped because the Voting Rights Act said that no matter who you are in the United States, your right to vote should not be impeded. And the Voting Rights Act said that any state that would try to impede your right to vote had to get permission. When that was lifted, when that imprimatur was lifted, dozens of states decided to make it harder to vote. And so my youngest phase was really focused on expansion. But for the last, now closing in on a decade, it's been spent on trying to protect the right to vote. As you said, voter suppression isn't a new issue in this country. And recently, bills in Florida and Georgia have passed that are tightening voter restrictions. How would you evaluate the fight for voting rights now? Also, on that, what do you think people need to know on where things stand who aren't paying attention unless it's, you know, right before an election? Voting rights are foundational to every other right that we enjoy. And this isn't hyperbole. If you think about it, everything we want to do as individuals is often governed by what society says is okay. Therefore, who gets to participate in deciding what those things are matters. And the way in a democracy we make those decisions is we vote for people. So imagine that you've been told that you don't get to have a say and that people who share your concerns, who share your needs are also pushed out of the process. Their voices are silenced. If you think about the protests that followed the murders of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor, those are questions of who gets to be the chief of police, which means who gets to be the mayor. If you're in Kentucky, it's who gets to be the attorney general for the state who decided to dismiss essentially the charges against those men. If you're in Georgia, it was about who was the district attorney who decided whether or not to charge the two men who were on film murdering this man in the streets. Those are all voting rights issues because our ability to respond to or to build towards what we need is determined by who gets to be in office. Therefore, in 2020 and in 2021, when a group of people, largely Republicans, lost elections they thought they would win because more people participated in the process, in part because of work that I and, and dozens of organizations did to make it easier to vote, and also because of an animated spirit that came out of both who the president was and was not, and the pandemic, and the economic crisis, and the racial reckoning. When more people showed up at the polls, the response in 2021 has been to make it harder for all of those communities to vote. When I talk about voter suppression, I'm not saying that this is something new. What I'm saying is they are in the process of changing laws, not based on a single proven wave of any kind of fraud. They are changing the laws based on a proven wave of participation. And when you try to stop someone from participating by making it harder, that is voter suppression. And it, you know, laws have passed in Georgia, Florida, Texas, Arizona. They're being introduced in Ohio now, to, and they'll move pretty fast. They're in Nevada. They're across this country. And so the other piece is voter suppression typically starts with communities of color because in our nation, marginalization is often tied to race. But let's be clear, they're also coming after young people because young people voted at the highest rates that they have voted. And when you say young, this is basically 18 to 30. Because of the dramatic increase in youth participation, 
we saw changes not just at the presidential level and the Senate level, but at the local level. And we are also seeing these changes impact the disabled. Those are all communities that when they speak up, the changes that they are able to create benefit everyone else. And so we should all be worried about voter suppression because no matter who their target is, they're probably going to hit you too. And if you are told that your voice doesn't matter as much, you got to think not only about your silence, but who gets to be louder because they can't hear you. How do you feel when people label the fight against voter suppression as a partisan issue? It is a, and I try to be very, no, no, I try to be very careful about this. Republicans are the current purveyors of voter suppression. From 1870 till 1965, it was the province of Democrats. And at the inception of this country, it was the Federalist. So it is partisan in the sense that the people in power are typically the purveyors of suppression. But the effect is what we have to focus on. And they don't ask, who are you going to vote for before they suppress your vote? They look at your category and they say, we're going to make it harder. But the problem with, with breaking systems, when you manipulate a system to achieve an outcome, you cannot predict who you will affect. And in a nation that is grounded in the basic perquisites of democracy, when you use your power to block access to democracy, you may intend to break it for black people or brown people, but you're gonna break it for everyone. And my mission isn't to get extra powers for communities of color. It's to get access to the basic powers that every citizen should enjoy, regardless of how they vote. Voting isn't partisan. Who we pick may be, but the process itself should be universal. It should be equally accessible and it should be nonpartisan. I want to separate you, Stacey, the person, from you, Stacey, this public-facing leader. You mentioned, like, at 17, you were working on this, and it wasn't the popular thing to do, and you were kind of doing it by yourself. You mentioned in the top of this podcast you were in law school and, and really focused on your studies and trying to figure out how to multitask. And as your career starts to take off, there's a lot of uphill battles that you personally face. And there is the, how will you be remembered in history books part of the story, which is you're breaking barriers and you've truly made impact. And then there's just like, you're a woman who is doing all of this. And I want to understand who were you at 17? And like, when you think about who you are today, what's the same and what's different? I have always been... I would say low-key driven. <laughs> and by that, I mean, I have like an A minus B plus personality. I am very driven, but I am not usually in competition with other people. I am in competition with what I want. So I I was never the person who picked out, you know, you're my target, like whatever, do what you want to do. I'm good. It was, I want this thing. So here's what I need to do to get this thing and make it mine. That part has never dissipated. I think my confidence has grown, of course, over time. And my belief in my right to want these things has gotten stronger. In my book, Lead from the Outside, I spend a lot of time talking about ambition. It's the very first thing I talk about because for so many communities, especially when you're young, when you are from a marginalized or 
minority community, if you're from the outside of sort of the norm of success, you're told not to be ambitious. And they never use that language. They just chide you or correct you or steer you, or they just never talk about it in front of you. And so the first time I realized that I wanted more than I was supposed to want, it was both terrifying and it was so freeing. It was this liberating moment to realize, huh, I have the right to think about bigger things. I still didn't talk about it. I wrote it down on a spreadsheet when I was 18 and kept the spreadsheet quiet and nobody really knew about it except for a handful of people until you know, I accidentally answered a question later in life. But the point for me was I am much more comfortable being open about what I want in part because of who I was at 17. I wish at 17 someone had said to me, you are a black woman and yes, you are entitled to imagine you could run for president. You have the right to start a business and you don't have to work your entire life to work for someone else. Those are things I discovered along the way. And I went to a women's college, a black women's college that encouraged us to be as you know powerful as we could be, but you were always limited by the stretch of your imagination. And in a nation like the United States, those limits can be hard and real. And what I think I appreciate the most about the difference between who I was then and who I am now is I don't care anymore. I'm going to want what I want. I do so with a very strong understanding that I'm not going to get everything I seek, but I do so with the understanding that I have the obligation to say so many of these things aloud when someone asks me, because to do anything else is to do a disservice to that 17-year-old who needed to meet me then. I have a lot of things going through my head. The first is when I was looking at our prep for this and one of the things that you know I was reading and was going to ask you is like, you have said you want to be president by mm -hmm. a certain year. And often the word associated with you saying that is ambitious. And it's, it becomes a loaded word because mm -hmm. it's like, look at her dreaming really big. And it becomes a gendered word and there's mm -hmm. so many other connotations to it. My question is, when you are so driven around what it is you want and you've identified things, whether it's president, whether it's to be an author, whether it's to run for governor, whatever it is at that moment, how do you turn your want into a path forward? I, I write it down. So first you have to write it down. You have to concretize your desires. Otherwise, they're just wishes. But when you write it down, you give it form in, in a literal sense, but you also give yourself an anchor. Like, this is the thing I want. But then the next job is to figure out how do you get there? My, my business partner and I, we started a bottled water company and we did all of this research on BPA and phthalates and injection molding and production lines and supply chain. We did all of the research we needed to do because neither of us had any idea what we were doing, but it was the plan we made. So this is the thing we want. So what does it take to get there? What skills do we have? What are our gaps? What can we buy and acquire? What are things that are just way outside of anything we can possibly do? And so how do you make up for it? And I apply that rigor to everything I want. It is not enough to say you want it. You have to figure out how you plan to get it and then you have to look at the list of things that you have to have to get there and decide, are you willing to do those things? If you are, what's the plan? And if you're not, 
how badly do you really want it? Because so often we stop ourselves at the point of idea or the first set of you know requirements instead of thinking, okay, do these requirements mean I can't get it or I can't have it now? My approach is to, and the reason I keep the spreadsheet is for exactly that reason. I want to know what I want. I need to know what are the things I need to do to get there. And then I need to track where I am at getting there. Because sometimes what you find along the way is, I don't really want it. This I don't like this thing that I need to do. And I thought I was going to be a physicist at one point in my life. Turns out I am okay watching Star Trek. Is it always the same spreadsheet? Yeah. So it started out with Lotus 1, 2, 3, which none of you will understand. But this was the prerequisite to Excel. And since then, I update the tab. So I, I make a copy of the previous sheet and then I update it with changes. So when I realized I did not want to be mayor, that was the highest office I could imagine when I was 18. When I realized after a while that that was not the job I wanted, I updated the spreadsheet and I started to think about, could I possibly one day be governor? I didn't know that it was possible. So then I thought, what are the jobs other than governor that can get me where I think I need to be to have this sort of statewide impact. And so I thought about each of those jobs and what it would take. It was why I decided early on in my life I didn't want to go to Congress because when I thought about what it would take to be in Congress and what the job was, and and I want to take a, a tangent here, it is so important to not focus just on the titles but actually understand what the thing is that you think you want. I would have imagined Congress to be on my list of things, the Senate. I have no interest ever, ever. And that's not a lack of ambition. It's a decision that the things that you need to do and the person you need to be and the job that you get to have, I don't want that job. And it is just as important to know what you don't want as it is to know what you want. Because if the things that you don't want are necessary to get to where you want to be, you're going to make dumb choices when you're doing something you don't want to do. And this is not the same as having a job because you need to eat. It's having a job that excoriates you, a job that makes you doubt who you are as a person, a job that makes you hate other people. If that's where you are, it's hard to survive that and be the right person for the ultimate job that you want to have. I think in the past... 15 months, a lot of people have pulled out their journals, spreadsheets, manifests, and sat down and thought about that question and maybe had a new answer for it. Is your answer for what you want the same as it was 15 months ago, or has the pandemic shifted it? What is the big goal for you staying forward? Is it still to be president by a certain year? Has it gotten even bigger. <laughs> so the president by a certain year was more driven by, I'm also, again, very goal oriented and it's it's important to concretize, as I said before. So I picked a year. There have been some interstitial decisions that have changed the timing somewhat. It's still a job I want, but it's a job that I need to be prepared to have. And there are other things I want to do that I think will make me better at that job. So no, the the goals haven't changed. The timing may change. And what I think I need to do before the, you know, the whole VP conversation became the sort of litmus test of my sanity, for 18 months, I got the same exact question. 
could you be, or do you want to be vice president? There is never a time where the answer was no, but I became the only person who got the question, are you qualified? And that made me really go back and think about it because, okay, let me see who's had this job before. What did they know? What do I know? I was like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm prepared. And it wasn't just me saying it because I wanted to say it. It was me because I researched it and I realized, yes, I could do that job. I, I say that to say this, not getting that job is not a mark against me. It's not a mark against ambition. It was Joe Biden's decision about who he wanted and he picked the right person for his administration and I applaud them. I work with them. I am so proud of them. But it also made me reassess how far behind my, you know, how, where I was on my, my sort of growth path. There's always more to learn. There's always more to be. There's always more you can develop. But it was an important opportunity in using your 15 months piece. It was an opportunity to really reassess where I was because sometimes we forget that we've grown. We don't really think through all the things we've done and what we've amassed. And that really compelled me. I mean, it's a complicated thing. So I had to really excavate my life to figure out who I was and where I, I'm situated. And it helped me realize I've done a pretty good job of getting to where I want to be. This is a career podcast. So I mm -hmm. want to make the analogy of what you're saying, which is when you say I want to be president one day, is the equivalent of somebody looking at a, for a new job and saying, I want to be the CEO at your company. Mm -hmm. Politicians are obviously like famously known for keeping tight lipped and like kind of flirting with different things. You ask somebody, are you interested in running for president? And they're like, you know, never know what the future holds. And like, I appreciate that you're like very straightforward. This is a goal. This is what I want. How would you advise somebody in their career when they are interviewing for a job and they're pursuing their career path to say, I want the top job. And they might not be ready to be a COO yet or a CEO. They might be at a VP level or, or a director level, whatever the level is below. But how would you actually advise people to both demonstrate what it is they want on that path for themselves while also being honest about where they are? I think it's doing both of those things, Carly. So the first is you always have to begin with an acknowledgement of where you are. I am a manager, but my aspiration is to be prepared to run a company of my own one day. What I want to do in this job is learn how to be so good at this job that I'm prepared for that next job. And so you want to you want to set it out not only as aspiration but as a marker for your manager to help you. If people know what you want, they will either try to help you get there or there's probably three choices. They can help you get there. They can do everything in their power to stop you or they can just watch you. If they're watching you, those aren't really people you have to focus too much attention on. If they're trying to stop you, you need to understand why. And if you can you know, negate their effect, great. If you can't, then just <laughs> try to stay out of their way. But then the people who can help you, those are the ones you cultivate. And you cultivate them not out of naked greed, but out of learning. I declare what I want because it get, helps me get access to the things I need to get better at that job and then to think about what the next job is. And so, yes, you want to be clear because ambition in the workplace is a good, but it should never be ambition that says I'm so focused on the next thing I want that I'm not going to do the job I have. And I will say this, I have had young people who work with me in the different organizations and companies I've created 
The most successful ones are the ones who want to learn how to get to this next thing. The most unsuccessful ones are the ones who tell me that's the thing they want and they're so busy trying to get there, they don't bother to do the job they have. You've always got to excel at the job you have and you've got to demonstrate that you are capable of doing the next job because every job after that is about more responsibility, more oversight, and more obligation. And if you can't handle the obligation of your current path in your current space, why should anyone trust you to do something more? We are going to move on to our last round, our lightning round. Quick questions, quick answers. Sure. You have run your own company, started your own companies, been in politics, been an author in different ways. What's been your favorite job? I know it's supposed to be lightning. I love what I get to do. I, and honestly, I don't pick one. That's such a diplomatic I know. No, no, it's, but it's not diplomatic. It's true. I mean, the problem with me is that I like doing lots of things and I don't, I give primacy based on the urgency of what I need to do, but I'm privileged to be in a place where I get to do things I love doing. All right. Are you a good cook? Yes. What's your go-to quick dinner recipe? I do a really good crusted chicken Romano over a bed of angel hair pasta with a quick lemon cream sauce. Invite us over for dinner. Absolutely. Thank you. What's the last show you've streamed or binge watch? Uh, Lupin. With subtitles or no subtitles? With subtitles because I really love dialogue. Okay. Who's your favorite suspense author? So I will pick a genre. If it is romantic suspense, I love J.D. Robb slash Nora Roberts. Love Nora Roberts. Who do you think is going to go further in the playoffs, the Knicks or the Hawks? I'm going to say the Hawks because I live in Georgia and I want to be able to stay here. <laughs> Fair answer. If you were going to start a new side hustle, what would the next side hustle be? Dude, I have really gotten to do all the things. So right now I'm dabbling in production. I am turning my books into television series and possibly movies. We'll see. And so I would keep it that. Keep building okay. my production side. That's awesome. What does it mean to you to make an impact? That people's lives are made better because of what I've done, no matter what the area. When's the last time you've negotiated for yourself? Yesterday. What did you negotiate? I got to go to bed, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. The last time I really negotiated, I actually, I'm working on a deal to produce one of my books. And it was the conversation about what that needs to look like. Two final questions. State to watch in 2024. Always Georgia, but I would say also North Carolina. And finally, who is someone else we should have on the show? So my business partner, Laura Hodgson, we started a fintech company together, which happened after our bottled water company did not work. She's amazing and smart and thoughtful, and we are so remarkably different from one another. But Laura Hodgson. Thank you very, very much. We so appreciate you making time to do this. And thank you for all the work you've done in the voting space. Thank you, yes, Danielle. You are amazing. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Danielle. Thank you, Carly. And thank you to the Skimmed community. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all of the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra.